Hello and welcome to Hysterical Women. This is a platform where I use my voice to share the stories of those society often ignores. I am your host, Freya Stewart-Grant, and today I will be joined by two amazing young women to discuss the topic of being disabled is a full-time job. So hello, Steph and Jericho. Welcome to Hysterical Women. I'm so pleased to have you on today. Um, So if the two of you would like to introduce yourselves and tell me a bit about yourselves. My name is Jerrica. I am a disabled woman. (laughs) I have schizophrenia and a whole host of other things, but kind of schizophrenia encapsulates it the best. Um, I'm an artist and a queer woman who lives with her two cats and her dog and her partner. Um, Yeah, just navigating the world. Brilliant. What sort of art do you do? I've been seeing you've been doing a lot of pottery recently. Yeah, I have really fallen deep into the pottery hole. Um, During lockdown, I bought myself a wheel and um, I've been throwing a lot and just I find it very meditative and it, it just brings me a lot of joy. That's well cool. (laughs) and Steph do you want to tell us a bit about yourself yeah hi I'm Steph um I'm also a disabled woman um I'm visually impaired so I'm registered severely sight impaired which is blind um I also have um ME um and I use a power chair and I also have some mental illnesses as well just to you know sprinkle a bit more just to spice it up (laughs) yeah and um I um have two guinea pigs at home who I love very much I'm a bit of a guinea pig enthusiast um (laughs) I love uh, music um I volunteer at girls brigade as well and I really enjoy helping the girls there um and I currently work I've only just got the job I'm very new into it but I currently work at an after school club for kids working with infant school children for six hours a week so that's quite nice. (laughs) Steph's also being very modest about her loving music. Oh (laughs) that's very modest Steph. (laughs) No no, it's not. (laughs) Yeah so before I got in with my ME I played the clarinet and saxophone and in year uh, so so the last time I was able to play I was in year nine and I got my grade six in my clarinet and then when I couldn't play anymore I carried on with the theory and so I've got my well because of my eyesight I couldn't take music theory as like music theory so I did practical musicianship which is basically music theory but in a practical way and I've got that at grade eight uh, which is the highest you can do it (laughs) and then you continue to still play piano as well Um, yes yes yeah I learned up to grade six on piano yeah that's amazing (laughs) so I wanted to just talk to you guys a bit about you know how disabilities can really affect all parts of your life how it equates to a full-time job you know taking care of yourself taking care of your illnesses And so one thing I was wanting to ask you guys is how many sort of meetings and appointments do you have in like a regular week or month? Um, Well, for me, it has changed a lot over the course of my illness. At the moment, I have weekly therapy, um, which is incredibly intense and involved. 
Um, and then, you know, sometimes I'll have a call from benefits or somebody else, but I'm actually not under the statutory services anymore because they run out, they ran out of care to give me. <laughs> um, so I receive private healthcare now, but when I was under the, the statutory services, I was talking to social workers and support workers twice a week. And then obviously I've had several inpatient um, stays. So like when I was in rehab, I was having two meetings a day with different staff members and support cooking and those sorts of things. So it honestly really depends on where I am with my health. And what about you, Steph? Um, I think it's about two to three appointments a week. Um, so I have um, my care co I see between every week and every two weeks. And then I also have mobility worker for my VI. So he helps me learn new routes and using my cane and stuff. And that can be up to two times a week, but is roughly about once a week. And I'm also doing a course for my mental health at the minute, which, uh, which takes up another time a week. Um, yeah. And then, so of course, all of these appointments, these sessions, these phone calls, they all just take so much time, so much mental capacity. And I mean, especially talking about, you know, those therapy sessions, Jerrica, I can imagine, you know, they wipe you out for almost a whole day. They could affect yeah. the day after. Oh, yeah. I'm still feeling the effects the, the couple of days after. And at the moment, I'm doing something called EDMR and CRM, which is basically deep trauma therapy. So you, you leave your body. It's almost like a hypnotic state. And I listen to bilateral sounds and my psychologist walks me through the trauma and it's a full body experience. So then by the time I get home, if I'm not completely dissociative, I am exhausted and falling asleep and then I, I can't function for the next two days. And then that only leaves three days left of the week. And it's just, I think people see these appointments be like, oh, well, it's an hour appointment. It's two hour appointment. But then also you need to get there. You need to find a way to yeah. get there. And then you need to find a way home. And then it's the recovery yeah. after the sessions. And also sometimes yeah. you need to prep before the sessions or do things yeah. between the sessions yeah what I was just going to say is also I think with therapy and you know doing anything cognitive it's often you do more work when you're not in the room your your brain is is figuring out those things when you're not there and that is so exhausting as well and especially when you're doing trauma work and, and sorting through those sorts of memories sleep is so incredibly disturbed because that's when your your brain is the most active yeah that must be hard yeah <laughs> Yeah, so with, with my therapy as well, when I've had therapy in the past, and I'm currently on the waiting list for DBT, which will be one hour a week individual, and then I think two hours a week um, group therapy. And so for me as well, I have to walk there. Well, I use a power chair, but like it's still walk. And um, so one hour appointment will take me at least three hours. So an hour to walk there, an hour for the appointment and an hour to walk back. <laughs> so like, and with my Emmy as well, that so it's a lot of like mental energy, obviously doing the therapy and trying to do that during the week, walk in there with my eyesight and that it takes a lot of concentration, having to um, use my cane in and my power chair. And then with my Emmy, just all of that will knock me out for a few days. And so that's something I was also wanting to have to talk about is that, um, you know, not being able to drive and the impact that can have, you know, 
possibly needing to be accompanied outside um, and that makes routine appointments so much more difficult to arrange having to arrange someone to go with you someone to come home and um, whether that's you know Steph like you said walking and maybe you'd have someone accompany you and then the time you had to put in to arrange the person to come with you yeah so I have carers come um pretty much every day of the week um to help me with different things um so I try and arrange appointments within my care hours so that they can walk me there and walk me back um but sometimes it is awkward if obviously you can't always pick times of appointments particularly on the NHS so yeah I'll have to then change my care hours or something to be able to fit it in because I can't I haven't really learned the route yet so I can't really I don't think I'd have the physical energy to do that all on my own so um yeah especially on the way home that could get quite dangerous yeah. as well you coming home and yeah. if exhausted it can then yeah of course yeah, and I'm legally not allowed to drive, so I'm very dependent on my partner to take me places. And, um, you know, my partner works two days a week because I, I need the support the rest of the time and we aren't in the financial position to afford care. So that's quite difficult sometimes being like, oh, I can't just walk myself somewhere or I can't just pop into town because I need somebody to drive me because it's not safe at the moment for me to catch the train or catch the bus by myself. And so then that adds another layer of feeling dependent on these people and kind of taking away a lot of your freedoms as well. You know, having to feel dependent on, you know, your partner or your care is a lot more than you ideally would, which adds again another layer of mental hardship, which then makes the whole ordeal a lot more draining for the both of you yes definitely and I, I don't know about you Steph but I also compare myself a lot to my peers and especially being a young woman like it's it's not really typical for people our age to have to be dependent on somebody else or not being able to walk when you're exhausted or you know and seeing my friends be able to just go on a, a trip you know so spontaneously without thought without even if it's just a trip to town or I get a text in the morning saying hey do you want to go out for a coffee today it's like I don't have the spoons yeah. <laughs> I can't manage that today and being so jealous of people who can yeah no I definitely get that that is really difficult seeing people your own age and I think in some ways part of the time I've been quite shouted for that um because I don't have so many friends sort of of my own age um however I've started doing a group and they're all like my age and they like messaged one evening oh we're all going down south sea do you want to meet up down south sea for like a barbecue in the summer and I was like I can't like it didn't work with my care hours and I didn't have the energy and I have no way to get myself down to South Sea on my own unless I I don't know paid for a taxi but even then I wouldn't know where they are and so like yeah it just it's frustrating because I just want to be free like other young people yeah it's isolating yeah very isolating yeah and it's hard because you try build new relationships but with different people your own age but then they're a lot more able to do things and then you can't and it's quite hard to get over that barrier I think particularly in our kind of early 20s mid 20s a lot of people all of their socializing is going out and just being spontaneous and like when you can't do that that does make it really difficult definitely I was also wanting to talk a bit about um benefits and funding and housing and how these lengthy applications and lengthy assessments 
you have to go through and then you may not even be eligible or there's an issue and you know you've had to go through such a draining process of applications and and the assessments the assessments specifically can be exhausting well I personally actually find the assessments quite degrading yeah the only assessments I've ever done have been on the phone because covid times or I've been in hospital and you are having to literally pour out all of your darkest hurtful things to a stranger on the phone you can't even see their face and then with that information they're scoring on a chart if you're worthy enough of support and it is just such a horrible experience and it's awful knowing you have to go through the ringer to be able to be supported when actually you should just be able to say hi I need the support can you give it to me and definitely I, I find it quite dehumanising. Oh, God, um, yeah. I, I'm quite lucky in that I've never actually had to do a uh, uh, sort of speaking assessment. I've always, thankfully, got mine accepted on the forms. But even then, filling in the forms is, like, horrible. And you're writing things that you... Everything is what you can't do. And it's so yeah. hard when you're trying to live your life thinking of the things you can do rather than things you can't do mm-hmm. to then be confronted with, well, you can't do this and this and this. And you know you can't. But having to write it all down, just it's just so horrible. And, and even then, like sometimes, so for my care hours, I had to do, that was with my care code, we did that assessment. But originally I was only going to be given like three hours social inclusion a week. So that'd be three hours to leave my house, to go for a walk, to go shopping, to do, you know, any errands I need to run. And I was like, like, I can't live on just leaving the house, like, in for, like, there's a difference between choosing or not being able to go out for whatever reason, but having someone literally say, well, you're only going to have a chance to go out for three hours a week. Literally prisoners get outside more often than that. That's exactly the point I said. So I think I managed to get it up a little bit more to mostly one hour a day, which is what prisoners get. Also, I don't know what your relationship with your carers is but what I've seen from the NHS is often it's you don't build a relationship with your carers it's a new carer every day and then you have to completely pour out your soul to this stranger that you're never going to see again and be vulnerable and you know some parts of physical care are being extremely vulnerable with your body and it's people you don't know having to help you and that's horrible (laughs) It is really horrible. And I mean, luckily, the care agency I'm under, I mostly have one specific carer come in the evening. So my mum's my PA, my personal assistant, who I employ, but she's broken her elbow. So she's off sick uh, for a while. And the care agency were covering for quite a while. And I would just get people who I'd see once. And it would be really difficult because you're trying to explain what you need them to do and what you're trying to do. And they're asking you all these personal questions. And they're coming in your home and it's really exhausting having people you don't know and having to try explain everything is definitely really exhausting and then um, at the minute I've just uh, temporarily hired a new PA to cover my mum's sick leave and the whole process of hiring a personal assistant is just so stressful and horrific like they basically leave it all down to you but there's a load of legal stuff you have to do there's just so much paperwork and I find it so overwhelming um and mentally I just 
it, I just really struggle with that um, and physically, to be fair. Um, yeah, it's just, it, it's not thought out <laughs> at all. And there's things like that where if you were able to, you know, do all this paperwork, if you were able to assess people and hire people and, you know, do all these things, then you wouldn't be asking for the assistance. And it's yeah. one of those things that... <laughs> If I was if I was able to sit there and do all this paperwork and I was able to be independent and you know fill out all these forms and do these assessments and I wouldn't be asking for a personal assistant. Yeah. Literally. You are legally an employer, so you have to do all of the legal stuff that an employer would do. And if you don't do it, then you are liable as an employer, which is quite ridiculous, really, I think. Like I think you should be able to choose who you have yeah that's good that's really good but I don't think it should be down to the disabled person to be officially reliable for everything because that is just so stressful um and even down to like paying and doing HMRC and all that kind of stuff it's just it's a root it's I really struggle with that which is why my evenings are with a care agency rather than a PA because I just found it really stressful um and it yeah which is sad because a PA means you have that one or a few people who you do get used to who you can be more free with like the care agency won't let me go swimming with the carers because apparently it's too risky whereas if I was with a PA they could take me swimming um which might be helpful but yeah (laughs) this brings me on to paying for things like carers out of your household budget this then inflates the household costs and also things such as mobility aid or other equipment being insanely expensive and you know braille lessons i know steph that you struggled with the price of them and they all eat into this tiny household budget oh massively um so i have an assistance dog in training and he is wonderful and lovely but really bloody expensive <laughs> and sadly there aren't any program dogs for my disability at the moment so there's there's no organizations like guide dogs that I can go to and get a dog free of charge at the moment for my illnesses I'm hoping in the future maybe it will come back so at the moment I'm having to work with a charity um, to train him but that is 50 pound for every training session and that's not including, you know, the outcost of a pedigree dog who I know's health is going to last for his entire life. His food, his vet bills, you know, buying him toys. And it is so incredibly expensive. And then you add on top the fact that I'm disabled. I don't have the energy to train my mobility aid. I... I I'm desperate for this dog to be working for me now but he's not ready and that breaks my heart because he's only just two so we're still in the throes of training and seeing him mess up or just be a dog instead of an assistance dog is so hard because I've put so much energy in and this isn't something you would normally have to go through with having a, a mobility aid you're not you know asked to build your wheelchair yeah. <laughs> but I am I, I have to train my dog and I just don't have the energy I don't have the the capabilities to do it either I'm not a dog trainer but I but I've got no other choice 
that's like me with a PA, isn't it? That yeah. if you had the energy and the ability to train the dog that you're having to do, but yes. ideally that's not, you don't have the energy. That's why you need the dog in the first place. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then, you know, I always like to have a little pot of money aside in case something happens and he needs mm. emergency surgery or, you know, his insurance won't cover it. And it all just really wraps up the household, the household costs. Um, which is something I, I think a lot of people don't realise that being disabled is expensive. Yeah, very. <laughs> Steph, I've specifically talked to you about, you know, the cost of wheelchairs, the cost of Braille yeah. machines, the cost of yeah. Braille lessons. And they seem very, very almost artificially inflated, especially things like the Braille machine. Oh, definitely. So my power chair, my power chair was £2,500. <gasps> the price of a car. Yeah, Isaac's power chair that he's just got is three thousand over three thousand pounds. Unfortunately, you can't get a powered chair on the NHS unless you need it in the house. Oh, I'm lucky that I can walk around my house and take it at my own pace around around my flat. But when I'm going out, I definitely need it when I leave the house. Um, so that's something I've had to pay to, to just give me independence. And Braille is um, quite ridiculously, I think anything to do with disabilities, they make the price a lot higher. So uh, just to little things that I just quickly looked up before this uh, I have um braille uno cards so that I can play uno uh with other people so a normal pack of uno cards would be like a five hour or something they're not an expensive thing uh the braille ones are about 13 pound I've got braille scrabble uh, at the time they didn't do braille bananagrams but now they do but I had to get braille scrabble to be able to play bananagrams so again scrabble's about 12 pounds something like that in 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 inside just a normal set it's 33 pound in braille so yeah and a braille I'm I'm lucky that I currently have a manual braille machine um called a Perkins brailler uh, which is basically like a typewriter but for braille very big and clunky not the easiest thing to use but one of those is I'm not actually too sure but it's quite a lot but to get a um uh, an embosser so something that you can put through like a pdf and it will print it off for you it's like a printer basically but for braille uh is about three thousand five thousand pounds there's also this amazing piece of technology that i really really want but i can't afford which is called an orcam eye so you wear it on your glasses and it will read things for you in real time it can recognize faces it can read the numbers on the bus it can if you've got a menu you can say read from starters and it will read from the start so you can tell it specific things which would just be so helpful but um they don't even tell you the price until you like sign up so i'm guessing that's several thousand pounds that i do not i wouldn't even want to know how much they charge you for that stuff um i had a braille watch a while ago and it was like a smart watch but not as good like it would tell you the time it tell you like a brief notification but that was it and that was over 500 pounds that's more expensive than an Apple Watch, which has different functionality, yeah. but they, yeah. it almost feels yeah. artificially inflated just because they it, know oh, you definitely. have to. Oh, definitely. I mean, like, to. my power chair, for instance, the thing that's really been getting me is the electric scooters. Now, that's a whole nother topic, but the, the price of electric scooters, they're not overtly expensive, and you can even get ones with a little chair on it. And I'm thinking that's what, like, three £500, something like that. What's the difference between that and my power chair but the price difference 
is humongous and yeah they see disability and they know you need it therefore they just charge Mm. a heck of a lot more and also for me for my personal household budget um I have to pay between four and five hundred pound a month towards my care um and until three weeks ago my only income was benefits so that was just coming straight out of my benefits to, to put that in perspective the the so I live in Portsmouth and the sort of people who have the highest priced houses in Portsmouth the most amount of council tax they'll pay a month is 300 pound so I'm paying 100 to 200 pound more than them obviously it's toward my care not council but I'm still expected to pay that and my income was solely benefits so and then so it's just kind of waving the money in your face and taking it straight back almost it's like oh you could have this but no Uh, If you had a little bit less care, then maybe you'd have a bit more money and then it leaves you weighing up. Do I want this or, you know, the care which I have to have? And then it kind of almost sees people reducing the quality of their life in some regards so that they can afford, you know, stuff like, oh, but I want I really want to, you know, go swimming. So then you might be reducing your care to do that. And then it's weighing up the quality of life, which is just puts you in a ridiculous situation of reducing your standard of living. Yeah. Oh, completely. My my partner, we made the decision when my partner and I moved in together that they would only work two days a week so that they could care for me because otherwise it would be them working 50 hours a week so that we could pay for carers or, you know, me not me going without care and having to depend on my mum or my sister or you know a friend which is not something I wanted to do and also just feels rubbish sometimes having to be like hi mum I can't get out of bed or mum I'm stuck in the shower come and help me like in what other situation would you know a 24 year old be like mum I'm naked come and help me get dressed you know none (laughs) so we, we made the decision as a couple that actually my partner would would stay home from work or only work two days a week so that we could collect the benefits that we do. Mm. I was just going to say this is also completely disregarding also the cost of I was going to say the cost of heating the cost of lighting as well from being at home for so long. I know specifically stuff I know you have the heating quite warm because you're obviously not moving around as much and you're staying still. Yeah. Definitely. I need the heating on to be not really warm, but warm enough that you're comfortable because um, I'm either laying in bed a lot, not moving um, or my Emmy as well. I get very bad um, body temperature regulation, so it can be a little bit cold, but I will be absolutely freezing or, you know, my body really struggles to regulate its temperature. So it's quite important for me to have a stable temperature around me. Um, And that can make it more expensive because obviously, and I'm sure Derek, you find this as well, when you're inside a lot, you because you can't go out, obviously most people, they don't mind if their house goes down to what, 16 degrees during the day, because they're not in, it doesn't matter. Whereas when you are disabled and you're in the house, you need it to be, livable yes you yeah you need it to be livable and you can't help that you're in all the time (laughs) no and also for me 
The dark is a really big trigger for me. So I leave a lot of lights on, even in rooms that I'm not in, because if I might have to go into that room, going into a dark room is really, really difficult for me. And it's something that I really try to avoid doing. So then I'll leave the bathroom light on because I know I'll need to go to the toilet in the next half an hour. So that, you know, adds up eventually. And also on the flip side of that, I feel so much guilt for doing that because I'm so aware that one, I'm wasting money or not wasting because it's what my disability needs, but that's, you know, societal pressures pushing down on me. But two, I'm so aware of the climate crisis and how limited our energy is. So then I'm constantly in two minds, like, should I leave this on so I don't have a terrible hallucination? Or shall I turn this off so that I can maybe save a little bit of energy? It's almost like the um, plastic straws all over again, isn't it? Where, you know, people are taking away things that some people need and guilting everyone into it without even thinking about those individuals who do need different assistance, who do need different aids. And it's kind of thrown on to everyone as if everyone can just drop everything. Yes. Yeah. It's it was yeah the plastic straws issue really really irks me because I'm like you are taking away a mobility aid I was gonna say as well um Jericho I don't know if you found this so I currently live on my own but my fiance is planning to move in with me uh sometime this year hopefully in August um he's also quite stable and has Emmy um so he's unable to work and will need care and stuff himself Mm. but one of the big things about moving in as a couple or as two people is when you're disabled that is it's so expensive and there's so much that impacts on that so for us personally I think one of the well a couple of things are my I'm currently on ESA uh, employment support allowance and when he moves in that will move to a couple's rate which isn't double mine so I'll lose out money in the long like we, we lose money by him moving in and also currently under the rules I'm allowed to save up to six thousand pounds but when Isaac moves in that'll be six thousand pounds between us that yes. at any one point just means we have enough money to renew our power chair if that breaks so really we have no savings if we had the six thousand pounds we basically don't have any savings because that money is legitimately there for mobility if we need it for our disability let alone the boiler break yeah exactly it it doesn't leave you anything i i can't have more than six thousand pounds in savings and combined we can't have i think it was more than twelve thousand pounds in savings or, or yeah something like that um which basically keeps you in the poverty trap because we will never be able to save for a deposit for a house because the second we get over that 6,000, they dock our benefits and then we're living off those savings. And it's it's like, but now we're under 6,000 pounds, so we need our benefits back. And it's just a constant trap of almost being able to break the cycle and then actually saying no no you've got too much money now so we're going to take away your income it's it's a poverty trap it is definitely I think I on my essay it's 15 hours you can work I mean personally that would be way too much anyway so I'm not particularly worried about going over that but it's also they they don't just give you a hourly um limit it's also a monetary limit so my job is pretty 
low income so six hours a week I do you know that I'm not going to go over that but Isaac has a maths degree he's very clever he he taught himself he's just very clever person so if he wanted to teach say and he did like three lessons of 50 pound each he would then be going over the amount he's allowed to earn a week even though he's only doing three hours but of course, he's a highly trained, skilled individual. Yeah. And so they're not giving him the opportunity to work as a highly skilled, trained yeah. individual. It's a trap. It's a poverty trap. It keeps you there and it's hard to get out. I know if I moved in with my partner, my universal credit would be fully taken away. And so I wouldn't have my own source of income. I'd be fully dependent on my partner. And of course, you know, I understand monetarily, I understand that. But also for my individual, you know, my personal living, my self-esteem, making my own money, having my own money come in is huge for me. And so, you know, if I were to move in with my partner, I wouldn't have my own money stream. And so that would have a massive knock-on effect for my, you know, having to get an allowance from my partner. Yeah. Also, it's about autonomy, isn't it? It's, yeah. you know, having your own yeah. autonomy over your things and over your, your being and yeah. being dependent on somebody else is very very hard and yeah. as disabled people we are dependent on everyone else for a yeah. lot of things so then putting money on top of that is crap yeah and it also leads I mean disabled people are, are a much higher rate of being abused or domestically mm. abused anyway and so if you then add money into the equation that leads to a very scary state where a lot of disabled people are forced to be in uh, traumatic or um, abusive relationships because mm. their partner is the one holding the money strings and they have no way of being able to get their own money and I think that's just yeah it's just so wrong like you should be able to be an individual and independent in your own way because being disabled isn't a choice you're not just you're not choosing to do whatever like you're you have whatever disability it is or illness it is that makes you not being able to work but that doesn't make you less of a person actually I think disability is a choice but it's not the disabled person's choice it's the society's choice yes. because yeah. we are disabled and unable to access things because of the way society functions if yeah. it was normal to rest and sleep yeah. for 10 hours and listen to your body when it was fatiguing we would be catered to but it's not yeah so it's the yeah. it's the, the choice of you know capitalist society that we live yeah. in that you know doesn't benefit anyone but white able-bodied cis straight men yeah <laughs> so true that leads me on to my um next point actually that employment either isn't possible or is so difficult to find flexible enough employment to meet your access requirement that it's not necessarily always that people with disabilities aren't able to work some people with disabilities might be able to work if certain accommodations were made or certain adjustments were made but it because employers are so unwilling to make these adjustments it forces a lot of people who really want to work and want to you know go out and do things it forces a lot of these people to not then do it yeah it's been a real struggle and linking with jobs is similarly with qualifications so I don't really have any formal qualifications as such other than for GCSEs because I was really ill and I was bed bound at my GCSEs and A-levels times and I've just not been able to build anything up so it was very hard for me to find a job that didn't need qualifications that 
was flexible enough for my hours so I was looking at six hours was about the average that I was wanting to work to be honest a week and most jobs are a lot above that and um or they'll say six hours but they'll say they want you to work more like you're contracted six but they want you to do more I was very lucky because of my girls brigade and a previous experience uh, job I had although I don't have a childcare qualification I do have experience working with children which I think is probably how I managed to get the jobs that I've got now and they're very good um I do two three hour sessions and they're really good at managing my wheelchair and my vision and everything and um, they're really flexible with that which is really good um but it is really hard I would personally really like to become a health play specialist but um, in order to do that, I need a level three childcare in order to be able to go on to the university course to become a health play specialist. But all level three childcare courses are either 30 odd hours a week if you're doing an apprentice or uh, apprenticeship or something with a, a college, or if it's an evening class designed for, to be more part time, you've still got to be working on top of college for 12 hours a week. And none of them, when I've contacted all of them, are willing to do less hours over a longer period of time how are you supposed to progress in a career if you can't get the qualifications or you can't do that because they're not making adjustments it makes it very difficult so it, it brings it back to the poverty trap doesn't it it you can't progress with your qualifications therefore you can't get a higher paying job or you can't get a job yeah it's just it is a trap and also I I think something that is important is the discrimination that disabled people face when mm. trying to get jobs. You know, I think it's also very important to note that I am white and cis and straight passing. So I have a lot of privilege there, but I've once applied for a job several years ago when I was able to work, which I'm not able to do now. And I disclosed my disability and said, I'm, I'm schizophrenic. And this was at a, a dog daycare and, you know, explained, I don't need anything special like I'm just disclosing this sometimes I'll need to go and take five minute breaks if things get too overwhelming and two weeks later I got a phone call that wasn't even intended for me asked it they they called me up saying oh is this so and so for the the job that you're applying for the job and I said no this is Jerrica I actually came in for an interview and you never got back to me and they said oh well we don't want to give a job to you because we think you'll be a danger to the dogs and I was just so stunned and I was like okay right okay bye and you know looking back if I had the fire I have today I would have really kicked up a fuss but they didn't take the chance to know me or learn about my disability they just heard schizophrenia and thought danger no can't work with animals I've had to fight kind of so hard to get my degree part-time every time I say to someone you know at university oh I'm part-time they kind of look at me funny because there's no one else in the department part-time yeah. I am the only person who's part-time in the whole physics department which is you know 200 people per year so there's lots yeah. of students people don't even know it was an option at my uni I had to really fight for it and then every single time I tell someone oh I'm part-time the next question is so what, what else do you do? I'm like, oh yeah, I do my degree. But oh, what else do you do when you're not? And I was like, oh, I do like quite a lot of uni work. And I, I always find myself saying, oh, I have a job at a cafe because I used to have a job at a cafe. And so I go, yeah. oh no, I work at a cafe on site. And 
I find myself almost embarrassed of not doing anything else other than my degree and it's like I am mm-hmm. doing a physics degree and to some people I understand you know they live in a world where you know people do a full-time degree and so they think oh I must be doing something else alongside it and I yeah. don't sometimes have the guts to say oh the other half of the time I'm you know looking after my disability I'm looking after yeah. my you know myself basically and I find myself having to you know excuse the fact that I'm part-time rather than just being like oh no I have a disability and that's why It's that kind of like um, side hustle grind culture that, you know, again, coming back to capitalism, that is shoved down our throats from so early on that we have to make, you know, that thing that Molly May said recently, everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. It was like, yeah, we do. But, you know, I'm not going to do the same things that you do in your 24 hours because I'm disabled as heck and I'm going to be sleeping and resting and trying to nourish myself with the things that bring me joy because the rest of the time I'm miserable yeah and I think as well it's people judge like that like I say I'm working and then oh it's six hours and they're like oh well you know like you Freya being part-time well what else do you do and I'm like well I'm kind of you know I'm in bed a lot of the time because I'm resting I'm doing paperwork I'm you know there's so much of just disability that I'm doing and that you know with Emmy and that I'm I don't have a lot of energy so I am asleep a lot and and then they think oh and then people say oh I wish I could be in bed so much or oh, I wish I could be God, so I much that. yeah it's so annoying you would give anything to not be yeah. in bed so much exactly I hate yeah. it and people are like oh I wish I could sleep so and I'm like no I hate it because my day is gone like my day is Mm. used up with resting because I physically am forced to like I love to have the energy and the ability to go out to do anything like go shopping all the time or play a sport or like be spontaneous and just do stuff like I just wish I could do that but people see rest as um a privilege when actually it's it's not it's a necessity and it's not always a good one like it's a good one as in for your physical health but it's not fun you know we're not doing it just because we're lazy and and that's another thing as well particularly with ME people assume that people with ME are just lazy and don't want to do stuff. Mm. Whereas everyone who I've known with ME are exactly the opposite. We want to do stuff. We just physically can't. Um, And that's, it's hard fighting the stigma against things as well. I think it's that level of casual ableism as well that is thrown around constantly. Like the word lazy has such ableist roots. Like I don't want to lie on the sofa for six hours a day and watch tv I want to be yeah. doing things I want to be making art I want to be with my partner I want to be having fun yeah but the world isn't catered for me so therefore I'm viewed as lazy because I can't do anything else but actually I, I like to think that it's the rest of the world that is just going overboard and I'm just you know normal yeah. or the rest of the world is lazy because they can't even be bothered to see it from your point of view and they can't yeah. even be bothered to think about it if you actually stop and think about it yeah. it's quite clear that that amount of time in bed and that amount of rest isn't a fun thing for you it isn't something you're no. opting in because of the enjoyment yeah I think people think rest is easy 
but I certainly don't find rest easy. I constantly have to force myself to rest. And like, sometimes I'll be on my iPad and I'll be like, oh, what can I do whilst I'm resting? Or it's like, actually, no, doing something whilst you're resting isn't resting. And, you know, I actually have sores on my hips from lying down so much and from resting. And I think people don't realize that this isn't fun. This isn't you know just oh I'm, I'm gonna go lie in the sun no my hips hurt from lying down so much mm-hmm. but walking around isn't an option right now yeah and um, this is kind of brings me on to you know the point I had you know written down is that society expects people to be productive and associates a person's worth with their productivity and that kind of leaves those who are unable to be productive in the conventional sense or the capitalistic sense makes them leaving feeling worthless because they're not being productive in that conventional sense but they're being productive towards their health or they're being productive in a slightly different sense but because that doesn't make money or because that isn't what people normally view as productive it then leaves people with disabilities feeling you know worthless Mm. I really, really feel that. And I think also before I got really unwell, I was extremely academically driven and I always thought I was going to go to university and then get a PhD and, you know, take that route of really, really high education and high praise in the eyes of society. Whereas now I, like you, Steph, only have my GCSEs and I spend my time making pottery this like if I told my 15 year old self this is how I was going to turn out I would have been appalled that I didn't grind that I didn't work that I didn't try and get into university because what am I if I haven't got a degree if I haven't got these qualifications that make me worth people's time but I wouldn't change anything because now I I look at myself and I know so deeply who I am and there's so many things that I love about myself that I would never have found out if I went down that conventional path that I thought was for me. Yeah. Because let me tell you, academia is not fun. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was also quite academic before I got ill and particularly in my music. I was wanting to go to the Royal College of Music and I one of my last lessons with my music teacher we were picking because uh, I wanted to go to their junior department we were going to pick a song to try ask for scholarships or um, sponsorships to get there because we couldn't afford it and and I always viewed my work on getting to the Royal College of Music and being in an orchestra and being right at the top of the game and then now I can't even play let alone be near the top of the game and it is really hard and not and having to figure out who you are Mm. when suddenly all the things that when you were younger you thought you were going to be and your worth was trying to figure out then who you are as a person is very difficult and but actually you're still valuable even if you can't work and even like there's still so much you can you contribute to the world and to the people around you without a paid job like everyone always sees don't they worth on whatever job you've got and things but actually sometimes just you being you is what contributes the most obviously if you can't have a job that's great but when you're disabled and you can't like that's not it you your worth shouldn't be defined on just on on just having a job like that's really messed up actually if you think about it very messed (laughs) up and also I think it, it drops further down than having a job I think sometimes 
I think I'm not worthy of love or, or to take up space if I don't put on a pretty dress or if I don't make an effort with my appearance. Like I will get embarrassed if I go out and I bump into somebody I know when I'm wearing a tracksuit or my hair hasn't been washed in two weeks because I don't want people to see me like that. But then I think about it and I'm like, actually getting out of the house was a massive thing. Yeah, I'm standing here degrading myself because I'm putting their judgment onto me. Yeah. That is a big thing, isn't it? Trying to put on a front of being healthy when you're yes. not, when actually yes. it should be accepted to be how you are. If yeah. you haven't washed your hair in, in a few weeks, that's fine. Yeah. If you haven't been able to change into new clothes, that's okay yeah. too. You know, if you haven't put a full face of makeup on, like like you say, getting out, that's a great thing. You know, it, it even took me a while to let my carers see me, not changed in the morning. And then I was thinking, what am I doing? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm not well. Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm literally making my life worse that I then can't do anything in the day because I forced myself to look prepared for when the people who are supposed to be helping me to get prepared. Yeah. <laughs> like, and I guess this brings me on to my last point of what would you like to see change in the UK system for people with disabilities? <laughs> well, when I read that, immediately I just thought everything. <laughs> but then I kind of reframed it and I just thought uh the the benefit system losing its poverty trap would be you know ideal and also for me everyday ableism I really think affects how I am viewed in the world like the word psycho is thrown around constantly and as a schizophrenic person who has a lot of psychotic symptoms I hate it and I'm not going to call it a slur because I, I don't think that's I, I don't think I have the, the place to call it a slur but it holds such pain for the psychotic community and then somebody's like oh her ex was psycho or there's a singer that I used to really love called Maisie Peters and she released a song called Psycho and I actually sent her a message saying this isn't okay this is a word that only psychotic people can reclaim and she replied to me saying well I wanted to reclaim it because my ex used to call me a psycho and I was like that you're, you're proving my point <laughs> you, you're you're looking directly at it and missing it completely and it's that sort of idea that people don't realize that they're being ableist and people don't realize that they're pushing disabled people down with their everyday actions yeah I would totally agree with that and like yeah basically everything <laughs> you said like removing the poverty trap you know letting people be individuals and their worth not being based on other people yes. who they happened to live with or be in love with and being able to have something to keep them secure even if that's money you know just because you're disabled doesn't mean you don't deserve a nice holiday yes. or some nice thing yes like you still deserve that yeah and and the system being less harsh on people like if someone if someone is saying they need help then they need help you know don't make them go through a degrading yes. dehumanizing process in order to give them the bare minimum yes we need people to actually be able to get what they need without that process being in place yes. because I mean 
everyone always goes, don't they? Oh, but what about the people who will abuse it? Well, what about the billionaires who don't pay their taxes? Yeah. That costs so much more money. Yeah. And I mean, I personally am a great believer in bringing in like a universal income mm. for, for everyone. Yeah. And that would get rid of so much of the disability context mm. because we wouldn't be seen we would have the same as everyone else and we would be able to be more autonomous without having to go through the dehumanizing process obviously there's a lot that needs to go into that to be able to make sure that it it works rather than just pushing prices up but you know just yeah not having to force people into bearing everything for nothing I think that something that also you were saying about you know the assessments not having to bear all is one of those things that that's also a very, very lazy system because oh, yeah. you have proof. You have proof that you are disabled because you've gone to doctors, you have gone to, you know, psychologists, you have gone to specialists. So why are they making you bear your soul to somebody you don't know when, you know, the referral could be done by your care coordinator and your care coordinator could have sent off the information or your doctor could have sent off the information so that it still does have that filter for, you know, the 0.1% of people who are going to maybe try and get around it. You still have the proof, but it doesn't have to be, I go and I cry on the phone to someone for, you know, two hours and beg them for my universal credit. It could be, you know, okay, fine, my care coordinator prepares, you know, there's there's ways around the system, there's 100%. ways to change the system to benefit people with disabilities. 100%. Definitely. And I also think, so what if somebody's trying to get around the system? Obviously, something is going on that they think they need that money or they need that help. Because it's not a lot of money. <laughs> Yeah, it's not a lot yeah. of money for the work you have to put in. So something's obviously going yeah. on there that they need other forms of help. So it's like, actually, yeah. let's maybe stop causing everybody else in the system pain and heartache and hard work because somebody doesn't know what they're doing and is going to the wrong place to seek help or doesn't know they need help. That's very true, yeah. Thank you so much for talking about this, guys. I really, really appreciate you giving up your Friday morning to discuss this. You've said some amazing points and it's been really, really inspiring to hear from you both. I think you're both amazing people, which is why I got you on. Thank you. (laughs) So thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Thank you so much for listening. And also thank you to my special guests, Jerrica Stevenson and Steph Davies for coming on my podcast today and sharing their experiences so candidly. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again next time. Bye guys.